Go ahead and have a seat. Welcome to Village Church. If this is your first time here, my name is Steve, one of the pastors here at Village Church. And as always, I am thankful and grateful to see each and every one of you. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be starting in verse 24 this morning. But last week, just by way of reminder, we got into really what is the body of the book of Colossians. We saw that false teachers were seeking to spread heresy about the person of Jesus Christ in the church at Colossae, but the impact of people believing those lies would have been severe. It would have led them away from faith, and the true gospel would have led them away from the real Jesus for a fictitious Jesus of man's making. And because of this, Paul begins the body of his letter by focusing on both the humanity as well as the deity of Jesus Christ in his personhood. And he did this last week by heralding both Jesus' deity as well as the implication of that, which is his supremacy over absolutely all things, because the former certainly leads to the latter. Uh, But the apostle wrote about it really in two different applications. We saw that first he started by noting Jesus' supremacy over all of creation, the physical world, the universe that is, that Jesus is supreme over absolutely all of the universe. He is the Lord of everything that is. But there was a second one, and he focused on Jesus' supremacy over what really is the new creation or the church. The outcome of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus was to build for himself a people redeemed from sin who live in submission to his authority in this world through the life of the church that he is building. The final paragraph, though, of Colossians chapter 1 deals very specifically with the application of the truths that we saw in verses 15 through 23. These things are true of Jesus, but How does that affect the life that you live if you seek to follow Jesus? And Paul begins by speaking of his life and then extends it into how it's going to have an implication, an application in the lives that they live in this world. Because quite frankly, the supremacy of Jesus is something that extends from an act of redemption to a lordship over the effects of that redemption into our very lives And Jesus, in fact, wields his supremacy to redeem people from sin, but gives them a very personal and specific mission that is to be lived for the sake of the world around you. Frankly, friends, if you are a Christian, then you are called by God to order your life around the mission that Jesus accomplished on the cross and through the resurrection. And that does change the course of your life and demands an all-encompassing allegiance to Him that is going to give you a brand new mission and a brand new plan for literally every part of your life. I want to start reading in verse 24. The apostle writes and he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, that is, the church. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. I want to pause there because the first point this morning is that living the mission of Jesus is about his authority. This extends from the message that we looked at last week, but it makes it extremely personal in the way that you live it out. That you must, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, give your life to the purposes of Jesus Christ. If you'll remember the way that verse 23 ended last week, Paul makes a statement about himself, and he says, of which I, Paul, became a minister, speaking of the church of Jesus Christ, speaking of what God means to do through the church. But then he almost states it in a different way in verse 25. We'll come back to verse 24. 
But it's almost something that seems like a restatement of something that he even said in verse 1. The context of the statement, though, is different. Here, when he says, I rejoice, excuse me, when he says, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me, he extends the supremacy of Jesus Christ into his position as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Yes, he is reminding the church at Colossae of the authority that God has given him, the authority from which he is writing, the authority from which he is seeking to correct the false teaching that has infiltrated the church of the Colossians. But he states this more so because of what the supremacy of Jesus had accomplished for him. He's saying that because Jesus died for me, because he rose from the dead, because he is the Lord of all creation, because he is the Lord of the new creation, because he's wielding his authority currently through the church of Jesus Christ, this is how my life has been changed. Paul's telling them, he's saying, I am not an apostle because it's something that I esteem to do. He's saying, I am not telling you this because it is my personal opinion and I want to lord that over you. He's saying, I'm not telling you all of this because this is something that I want to do to give myself great power and to give myself great fame. I am doing this because, and he uses the word stewardship, because this is the stewardship that I have in my life towards God because of everything that I said in verses 15 through 23. This is why am I so passionate about the supremacy of Christ? Because he's my Lord, because he died for me. Because he rose from the dead to give me a new life. And the implication of the mission that Jesus has given me is that he has personally made him an apostle in his church. And I have to correct any wrong because that is how I have to wield what Jesus has done for me. It has changed everything about my life. And the apostle is telling them that he's now living for the mission of God who lived, died, and rose again for his personal redemption. There's one way about talking about redemption in a general sense over all Christians. But Paul is speaking here about the effects of redemption in his personal life. And further, the calling of God on his life was not arbitrary. Rather, this is a stewardship that God had given him, and he had to wield it the way that God defined him to wield it. You know, that tells us something about our own lives and the gifts that God has given you. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, God has given you a gifting to use for his gospel. And every single one of you have some type of position in this life, position in this world, position in this church, whether it's on a serve team, whether it's in a group leadership, whether it's pastoral leadership, whether it is some type of job that you have outside of the church, a position that you hold in a company, a position that you hold with a company of your own making, a spiritual gifting, whether it is a gifting that leads you to serve people, serve the church in some way, whether it's a gifting that leads you to lead others. I don't know what it is. We have such a variety, 1 Corinthians 12 tells us, but none of those things exist to make you look great. The apostle Paul is saying is that every gifting God had given him, every position that God had put him in was about the mission of Jesus Christ and the mission of Jesus alone. But we fall for the allure of desiring the applaud, the applause of others so quickly. We desire that thank you from other people. We desire for other people to look at us and say, you're doing a great job. You are great is actually what we want to hear from other people. And you know what that is? That is the sinful desire to rob the glory that only belongs to Jesus for ourselves. 
You've fallen for that, and you might think that I'm wrong, but the question you've got to ask yourself, how quickly do you go from desiring a place of service to being frustrated that no one is noticing how much you're serving? Our service must be about the worship of Jesus Christ and the worship of Jesus Christ alone, or it isn't worship at all. And Paul is telling the church the same message that he had from 15 through 23. He's just driving it home. The message is, it's all about Jesus. Paul's saying, I'm not wielding my authority because it's about me. I'm not trying to be famous to you. I'm not trying to just be the one in the position of power. He's saying, I'm trying to keep you on the path of making Jesus look the way Jesus actually does look, which is glorious. Therefore, you steward the gifts that he gives and even the positions that he puts you in to both reflect and to serve the mission that he has established, not in your life, the mission that he has established and the purpose that he has established in his life. So that is why Paul is wielding this authority. That is how the life of Paul could then become more of an example for the Colossians to follow rather than the false teaching of others that would lead them away from Jesus in reality. Why? Because Paul had given his life to Jesus. It wasn't about his life. Therefore, what Paul is saying is everything that I'm giving over to Jesus Christ, you need to give over to Jesus Christ. You need to be faithful to Jesus Christ because that's what I'm trying to do. Then go back to verse 24. He makes a direct implication of the position that God had put him in and actually makes a statement because of the supremacy of Christ, suffering is endured with joy. Sounds crazy. In the book of Philippians, Paul is even more specific of the suffering that he endured for the gospel. He actually points out something about the church of Philippians that was actually also going on in the Colossian church. That some of these false teachers, these false leaders who were seeking to usurp Paul's authority had tried to use the suffering of Paul to question his authority. The thought and the way that they would do that would be that they would look at these Christians and they would say, look, if Paul is legit, if you should follow the teachings of Paul, you have to ask yourself the question, why is he suffering? Is that what you want? Do you really want to suffer the way Paul is? Because if God loves you, if the gospel is so great, if your faith is so powerful, wouldn't your life be easier? And wouldn't the life of Paul be easier? And they would actually use the suffering of Paul. Keep in mind that he's writing the the book of Colossians from imprisonment, awaiting his execution. He's very acquainted with suffering, literally for the sake of the gospel. Yet in his letters throughout the New Testament, Paul speaks of suffering for the gospel as though it is used by God as a path to growth in his life. More than that, a path of joy in his life. When everyone else in the world is telling you, avoid suffering at all costs, that's what they'll do. Even people inside of the church don't do hard things. If it's difficult, maybe you should avoid it. Boy, that sounds like more trouble than it's worth. Well, if you're going to get in trouble, just don't tell people you're a Christian. The Apostle Paul takes the opposite 
viewpoint, he says, now I rejoice in my sufferings. He says, and in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. In verse 24, he says what I believe is the most provocative thing about suffering that you find in the New Testament. It's all provocative based on what we're conditioned to believe. We're conditioned to believe we should take it easy. We're conditioned to believe we should have a pain-free life. We're conditioned to believe that if any moment of sickness, any moment of suffering, any moment of persecution, any moment of hardship comes into our life, we should question even the existence of God. The Apostle Paul writes, no, this is the pathway to joy. This is the pathway of growing in my faith. But what fascinates me, he says, I'm actually filling up what is lacking in the suffering of Christ. Amen. How is that possible? In 1 Timothy 1.8, Paul wrote to Timothy that there should be no shame for the gospel. That, of course, we accept that, nor for suffering for the gospel. We don't necessarily like that very much. But suffering is endured through the power of God. And so he makes this connection. You want to experience the power of God? Endure suffering. And you will see the power of God on full display in your life. I know, I'd rather part the Red Sea. Then in 2 Corinthians 1.5, he notes that all Christians share in Christ's sufferings. Sure. Why? So, through Christ, we share abundantly in comfort too. That there is something that you will experience in suffering about an intimacy with the comfort that Christ wants to give into your life that you cannot experience apart from suffering. And Paul knew this well. Read the letters of Paul. He's quick with lists of all the terrible stuff he's done. He's like, not only have I sinned against people and I'm suffering for that, but guess what? I've been beaten up for the gospel. I've been sick because of everything that I'm doing for the gospel. I've been imprisoned for the gospel. I've been shipwrecked for the gospel. I've been beaten with poles for the gospel. One time, everybody in a city tried to kill me by stoning to death, and God miraculously spared my life, and I went back in and suffered again for the gospel in the same city. And so if you want to know what it looks like to suffer for the gospel... This isn't about when I stub my toe. And I do it all the time. And I'm beginning to think something's wrong with my balance. Have you ever stubbed your toe and then blamed the piece of furniture that you stubbed your toe on? Sometimes I personify my furniture and I ask it, why are you there? As if it put itself there and I had nothing to do with it. But in my house, something that I think there's a conspiracy because my feet seem to have magnets for pain and suffering. Not only is the furniture in my house to get me, my children are out to get my feet. My wife is out to get my feet. Yes, dare I say, my two dogs are out to get my feet. My feet are stepped on statistically, and I think I've got the numbers on my side, more than any human being on earth. <laughs> by some creature, by some inanimate object. And let me tell you, it doesn't feel good. And I will also admit to you, I am fleshly enough that every time something hurts my foot, I don't say, well, bless God, thank you for that. <laughs> no, I hate it. I want to avoid it, but apparently I can't. I understand Paul's thorn in the flesh well. <laughs> but what's fascinating about the reality of suffering in life, and here's the minimum standard of suffering, stubbing your toe. That's the minimum. They're, they're, I, it hurts, but wow, that's not much. 
But what Paul is talking about where joy is concerned, not that he is a masochist that wakes up every morning finding a new way for pain. No, the apostle has a different outlook. He's saying, because Jesus died for my sin, because he suffered for my sin on the cross, because he paid the penalty for my sin on the cross, and because he rose from the dead, I know that he's overcome the world because the last enemy is death. And because of that, I know that there is coming a day where there will be no more stubbing of a toe. And if there is no more stubbing of the toe, I can also extend the reality of Jesus overcoming the grave to the fact that there will one day be no cancer. That there will one day never be a Parkinson's diagnosis. That there will one day be no MS. That there will one day be no, and, and there are diseases I don't even know about. But there is coming a day where no one will walk out of a doctor's office with the last words they ever wanted to hear in their lives. And there is coming a day where there will be no more mourning at anyone's funeral because of the gospel of Jesus. And so when you read in the scriptures and you read the New Testament and Paul says this a lot. I rejoice in my suffering. He's not talking about masochism. He's not looking at you saying, don't hate the pain. Because I do. And I think Paul did. I don't think Paul woke up imprisoned, unable to take the gospel to whoever he wanted to. And therefore, he could only preach to the Roman praetoriate. I don't think he woke up saying, well, this is great. This is exactly the way I want it to go. No, I think he hated it. I think he longed for the day that he wouldn't have to be beaten another time. Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings because he knew the Savior who had conquered suffering. And he was applying it to every day of the mission that he lived. And he knew that if he avoided the suffering that came from living for that mission, then he would lose the comfort of his Savior. And if he lost the comfort of the Savior, he could only enter into suffering miserably. And Paul says, but you can have joy in the face of suffering. Because here's the thing, how does this work out in your life? First, you are not going to avoid suffering. Death has a 100% matriculation rate. Every one of us will face it. I don't know when. Some of us sooner, some of us later. And typically the pathway that leads to the grave is not instantaneous. There's a lot of unpleasantries along the way. The curse of sin guarantees it. There is pain. There is suffering in many ways in this life. But the gospel even transcends that which unbelievers experience in their lives. That's what Paul is saying when he talks about lacking in Christ's afflictions, and that he was filling it up. Because the gospel guarantees, first, you are never alone in your suffering. Second, that Christ has overcome the suffering through his redemption that this world could give you, but then also that suffering for the gospel is used by God as a revelation that you belong to Christ. When he says what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, he is not making a statement that the atonement or the death of Christ is in some way insufficient. Rather, he's actually talking about the sufficiency of the suffering of Christ because 
Jesus was clear. Jesus didn't falsely advertise the outcome of his gospel. Jesus didn't look at us and say, wide is the road and pleasant is the path. No, Jesus said, narrow is the road. Difficult is the path. He looked at his disciples at one point and he said, if they are persecuting me, what do you think they're going to do to you? If they're going to persecute you too, you're going to share in my pain. But here's the reality. The false teachers, those that would vilify Paul, the Roman government that imprisoned Paul, the Jewish people that rejected Paul for the gospel, sought to kill Paul because of the gospel. Those very people could not reach out and physically persecute Christ any longer. So the affliction of Christ was lacking in Paul's life because Jesus could couldn't personally endure it. So what was Paul doing? Paul was enduring the same afflictions of Christ because he was suffering for the sake of the gospel. And he said, I rejoice in that they can't reach Jesus any longer because he's risen. He's at the right hand of the Father. He's waiting to come again to install his kingdom. But they can reach me because of Christ. When you walk the path that Jesus walked, you rejoice in the reality that there is nothing in this world that can separate you from the love of Christ. Through faith, you overcome the pain of this world regardless of why it's there. And sometimes because of why it's there. Whether it's suffering, whether it's pleasure in my life, the glory of Christ through every action and activity in my life is the goal. And only the gospel can give you a philosophy to apply to your life for that. But here's the key. It is only through submitting to the authority of Jesus over your suffering and over your choices that you can cultivate that mindset. Apart from that, your suffering will be meaningless. Apart from that, it will only incur misery in your life. So the question that must be asked is, do you trust Jesus' authority over your life? And if you do, suffer with joy. But he continues that thread. Look at the end of verse 27. Excuse me, the end of verse 25. It says he's a minister of the stewardship from God that was given to him to make the word of God fully known. And so he's telling us that his suffering, his authority, his stewardship exists for a specific purpose to fully make the word of God known. But then he says that it's worth it and it's valuable and it's vital because the word of God is the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Number two this morning, the gospel of Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God's will. 
It's the ultimate revelation. And here's what I mean by that. He zooms in to the 15-foot view of his life, and he says, I've been given authority that I must steward over the church to keep you on the path of following Jesus, and I'm doing it in part by suffering for the sake of Christ with joy to stay faithful to him, to know his comfort. But then he zooms out, and now he gives an objective reason as to why it's worth it. He says the gospel is the most valuable thing ever in the history of the world because it is the purpose for which everything exists and it is a reality defining cause. So many of us never get beyond the personal 15-foot view of our lives to consider the 15,000-foot view. And here's what I mean by that. When you think about the will of God in your life, you immediately begin to think about things like a spouse. You think about a career. You think about the big choices that you are going to make about where you live, what you do, personal things. What Paul is saying is... When that's the first thing you think about, you're not thinking about it through the lens of the gospel. God's personal will of your life can never be known until his ultimate will for reality itself is submitted to. That's a couple of questions. That's what the Christian worldview is. It is the question of why is creation here? Why am I in it? And what is all of this and all of you about? That's the mystery that Paul is talking about. And he's saying it can get quite confusing when you have the scales of sin on your eyes. Sinful man can't understand it. Sinful man can't bear such a revelation that everything exists for the purpose of bringing God the Son incarnate Jesus Christ into the world so that he could live a perfect life, so that he could pay the penalty for our sin on the cross, and so that he could rise from the dead, and so that all who believe can live to know him and make him known to others. That is the mystery of God's will hidden from the Gentile world for ages. And that is why I am here. That is why you are here. That is why all of this exists. And that is what all of you are about even to me. It is the same thing as last week, which was it's all about Jesus. Nine times out of ten in Sunday school, and usually on the 10th one, I could convince the teacher that Jesus was the answer. <laughs> and this is no different. I exist for Jesus Christ. Christmas will be coming in a few weeks to be here before we know it. And of course, the narrative of Luke 2 will be heralded all over the place for good reason. Christmas is about Jesus Christ and his birth and when we read that narrative, my favorite part of the narrative isn't what everybody else's favorite part of that narrative. It's an important part. I love the baby part, you know. But I like to go back to the beginning where it says that a calling was put out of Rome that everyone should be taxed. And in order to pay this tax, you had to register in the hometown of your family. Because what that actually shows is God's sovereign power over the, what history tells us is maybe the most powerful government that ever existed. God bent Rome to his will so that Joseph and Mary would have to go to Bethlehem 
Do you realize the implications of that type of sovereignty? What that reveals to us is that in every moment of human history, behind the scenes of everything that was going on and everything that is going on is a sovereign Lord who literally bends history to his will. And when you realize that, you look back at what we did through the Joshua series, and you realize that everything that took place in the book of Joshua was ultimately about cultivating environments and atmospheres in this world so that he could endure for himself a people, so that at the perfect time, in the perfect place in history, Jesus Christ could be born from the nation of Israel. And that is what has been going on from Genesis forward, is that everything was so that Jesus could come into this world and redeem sinners for the glory of God. And so when I consider, what do I do with my life? There's only one acceptable answer. That. I live for the glory of the God who became a human to redeem sinful man. And I will tell you, that is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. The human heart is so tainted by sin that this is the real offense of the gospel. Because we want it to be about us. We want life to be about us. We want to believe that our lives are the center of someone's universe, even God's. But the gospel paints a picture in which we are hopeless, we are directionless, and we are blind in our sin. And we needed Jesus to come redeem us through his work, his power, and his life. And that is what he did to bring himself glory. The gospel of Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God's will because the gospel of Jesus isn't about making me look great. That is where sin leads me. The gospel of Jesus is about making Jesus glory. This is a revelation of what he already is. That is why Christianity is unique in its truthfulness. The gospel is the truth that the whole world not only needs salvation, but to understand the purposes of life and the reason behind all that is. And so the gospel cannot be reduced to just my personal life. The gospel is the reason that reality itself exists. And without the gospel, everything skews toward lies. Ephesians chapter 3 sheds... Further perspective on this, Apostle again, Paul writing, Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Is that how you view Jesus? The unsearchable riches of Christ? Or is he just a compartment of your life, just a part of you? And to bring to light for everyone what is, here it is again, the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. And then it says, he created all things so that through the church, here it is, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And Paul goes cosmic on this one. He says, not only does this amazing plan for the gospel, not only does it reveal the manifold wisdom of God to physical people, to you, to me, it says that the gospel is so incredible and it is so amazing that even the spiritual realm 
And he doesn't limit it. He says rulers and authorities. So we're talking about angels. We're talking about demons. We're talking about Satan himself. At seeing what Jesus accomplished on the cross and the resurrection, all of them looked on. And now they look at the church and they say, wow, incomparable, undefeatable. That's why when you think about the spiritual warfare in your life, that you can look at the enemy and say, you cannot have my life and say it with certainty. And friends, that is why, in a very real and personal way, you can look at the enemy and say, you can't have my joy. Do your worst. Because the gospel means that even the worst of suffering, and that is what the murder of Jesus Christ was, can immediately be tilted to show the almighty power and glory of our great God and King. And that is the resurrection. There's nothing greater. There's nothing more defining. There's nothing more worth it. As I said, so last week, so many seek to make their lives about something. You search for significance. You search for purpose. But then you apply your significance and purpose to things that will ultimately be meaningless in the lens of history. Paul wants every Christian to understand that there's nothing more important or more significant to commit your life to than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And history leads to Christ in every era is bent by God to ultimately culminate in the glory of Christ. And then Paul finishes chapter one by telling us that there are two specific implications of what he's talking about. He's saying there are two non-negotiables. Because so many of us, we want so much of what we should do and how we should think and what we should be about to be based on something that we already wanted to do. And so we just stamp the name of Jesus on whatever we felt like doing anyway. And we're like, that's my Christian service. No, Paul gives us two things. Look at verse 28. He says, Him, Jesus, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. He's always quick to say, this isn't about me. This is from God. First thing that he tells us is that every Christian must proclaim the gospel of Jesus. And he uses that term. He says, him we proclaim. This is a non-negotiable no matter how much we avoid it. And that term proclaim is not a term that can mean anything other than I herald to many people. The apostle is saying, you must make your life about preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ because that is the mission. Amen. In our social justice-driven era, there is this temptation to tack the term gospel onto everything we do and think that that gives it purpose. But friends, gospel mission must mean something specific or it will not mean anything at all. Amen. 
First, Paul focuses on that proclamation. Gospel literally means good news in the original language. It is the good news of what Jesus has done to redeem us from sin and give us his righteousness. It is the good news of what Jesus has done to redeem us from sin and give us his righteousness. Friends, this is not about you. That's why it's news. You don't earn it. You don't make it happen. You have to share with someone what someone else did so that this could come into reality. And that is why it takes words. Like some of you are hoping you're going to mow your grass and landscape your yard so well that your neighbors will be overcome by gratitude of their property values going up that they come over and they're like, oh my goodness, there's only one reason your grass could look so nice. Jesus. And I'm giving my life to him right now because you, I, that, that mowing is unparalleled. <laughs> Friends, that's not how any of this works. You might want it to work out that way, but it doesn't work out that way. The way that it's going to work out is that there's going to come a time, and it should be now, where the moment you find out somebody is not a Christian, that you make it your mission to changing that. And it's not going to be, look at how good I am. No, it's going to be, friend, I know a great Savior and you need him. But note, Paul also uses another term. He uses the term warn. That's a term that is, in some translations, admonish. And it means that in view of sin and the coming punishment, you had better turn to Christ. When you remove the warning, the news will become less good and it will become less relevant. The reality of sin and judgment makes the good news good. In that, Jesus saves us from what we actually deserve. But I see so many gospel presentations begin with almost you convincing the person out of their need for Christ. You can't look at them and say, you are great, and this is why you need Christ. Because then they'll be like, well, I'm already great. <laughs> Guess I'm good. I just am saved. Born that way. <laughs> no, friends. Sin and judgment are difficult things to address, but they're hard to convince anyone that they're real. But what we must realize is, is that the sin is ours and the judgment is deserved. And that is what makes Christ so needed. The gospel then, Paul says, deserves exhausting effort in that proclamation. Note what he says. He says, for this I toil in verse 29. The word toil literally means to labor unto extreme fatigue. So many people think that evangelism and proclaiming the gospel is limited to professional Christians or for super Christians or for the church staff. But Paul here is talking about every Christian. That's why he's so inclusive. He says, we, he's including you. He's talking about the outcome of submitting to the supremacy of Christ and understanding the mystery of God's will. And he says that leads to a new mission in which Paul says, and in some manuscripts in the original language, it actually translates the term used for toil as I work myself to the bones for this because it's worth it. 
As I'm expending so much energy for the gospel, there are times that I think I cannot go on. But then he tells us the ever-present reality. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy. In other words, when I come to the end of myself, I find the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. But the only way you're ever going to find the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit is when you come to the end of your own effort. Paul says, I'm giving it my all. In Acts 20, 31, he actually puts his extreme effort. In other words, he tells the church at Ephesus, he says, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish, there that word is, everyone with tears. He's saying, I am not only expending myself physically, he says, when it comes to the gospel, I am wearing myself out emotionally. I want you to come to faith in Christ, therefore I do it with tears. Are you proclaiming? It's a very simple question. Or are you afraid that an unbelieving world will reject you to the extent that you hide from them the mystery of God's will hidden for ages now revealed in Christ? Is it not worth your effort? But then there's a second thing, and I think it's a separate thing. In verse 28 I believe Paul says not only do we proclaim, but we teach. And what he means by that, I believe, is that every Christian, number four, must make disciples of Jesus. We must. In other words, we don't just convert them and say, good luck. We don't reduce the gospel to just what Jesus did and give them the minimum amount of information so that they will come to faith in Jesus and say, don't worry about the rest. I mean, sure, God gave us 66 books, but that other stuff doesn't matter that much. You're saved, so that's it. Now, what does Paul say? Look at what he says. He says, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Why? That we may, we may present everyone mature in Christ. That is not a convert. That is a fully devoted follower of Christ. And Paul gives it as the potential and the goal for every Christian. I think some of you have kind of put yourself into a category where you're like, I, I'll never get to a mature Christian. And so I'll just be the lower league, the minor leagues, the lesser thans. That's a lie. It's a lie from Satan. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wouldn't have used the term that means everyone unless it meant everyone that comes to faith in Christ. He's saying, I have the goal. I want to present everyone to faith, excuse me, to maturity rather in Christ. And he says the pathway there is giving them all wisdom. That takes us back to verse 25. What does he mean by all wisdom? In verse 25, he says, the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make what known? The word of God fully known. All of it. The whole scriptures. That is how he's going to create a continual cycle of growth that the church must commit to where I seek to become fully mature in Christ so that I can help you become fully mature in Christ. That was Paul's goal. In order to proclaim the gospel, though, guess what you have to do? You have to know it. That is why he states just two chapters later, Colossians 3.16, that the word of Christ needs to dwell in you richly. 
teaching, there it is, and here it comes again, admonishing one another in all wisdom. And just pause there, that's, that's enough. That is about presenting everyone mature. That comes from hearing it, reading it, thinking about it, being taught it, and then teaching it. You have no idea the growth that is spurned on by me needing to teach the scriptures to you, that being my responsibility. Do you know what burden that places on my life? It's a burden that I better know it pretty well. And I better be applying it to my life. It has been an avenue of incredible growth in my life. And Paul is saying, everyone mature. You must have a goal. I want to teach others scripture because it will be a pathway for me becoming mature in Christ. It's pointed inward there, though, towards the church at that point. There will never come a point in your life with Christ that you outgrow your need for the truth of the gospel. It is a reminder for our faithfulness, and it is an ever-present truth to push us forward in our growth in living out our faith in this world. Because discipleship demands effort, and that brings us back to that term in verse 29 that he applies to both proclaiming and teaching. Not only is he exhausting himself to make converts, he is exhausting himself to then disciple them in the faith. Are you? It's designed for us to learn and act in accordance with our faith. And he gives us our everyday lives to practice it. So the question must be, are you practicing your faith? Are you focused on discipleship in your life? Because here's the deal. I want to present others as mature in Christ. But that necessitates me seeking out maturity in Christ for myself. That is not an unrealistic goal, but it does demand a realignment of your life. You are not going to grow in maturity in Christ until your commitments match that goal. So many of us commit ourselves to lesser things over and over and then assume that those lesser things are a sufficient enough excuse to prevent us from having to commit to those environments by which we would actually become mature in Christ. And I don't care what it is. Could be watching your bank account grow. Could be worrying about your 401k. Could be a hobby that you overcommit yourself to. Could be a lifestyle choice. Could be some identity that you are seeking. It could be granite countertops. But there are so many things that we commit our goals toward that will have zero impact in the positive of us becoming mature in Christ, but they will actually become a net negative drain on our maturity in Christ because you are seeking false gods. That is just as much a false doctrine. Friends, if you're going to grow in maturity in Christ, you have to actually do things. You have to actually commit to things. If you want to see God work in your life, this is what you will focus on. This is where you will spend your time growing towards. Paul worked himself to exhaustion 
I remind myself of that all of the time when I hear so many people whining about burning out. I'm going to burn out. I'm going to burn out for the glory of God. And then he finishes by pointing out that it all required a supernatural energy that he did not have in him, that, but that God graciously supplied for him. What a goal! I want to believe the gospel to the extent that when I look at what is happening in my life, I understand that I couldn't have done it without the power and strength of God working through me for His glory. That was Paul's goal. Does your life reflect that? A few application points this morning. First, pursue the purpose of God's mission above your own. There are so many things that we commit ourselves to that distract from the gospel that we won't even care about in five years. This isn't even about, it's not even about things that outlive us anymore. It's about things that will outlive this season. We overextend ourselves. We convince our children that they must be involved in 17 sports and 17 different clubs to the extent that by the time they're 18, they will all be on pills. Good luck. We're wasting our lives for things that aren't the gospel. Live for Jesus. Secondly, find God's will for your life through the gospel. Stop looking for it elsewhere. Thirdly, proclaim the gospel to non-Christians. No qualification. That's just it. And then finally, make disciples of Christians with great effort. 